Great. Isn't it amazing to um, start seeing the sun coming out again as well? Although um, I've, I've actually been with my family. We've been traveling around um, Britain, mainly the south of England, for most of the last week. Um, lots of people have been coming and um, saying that they can imagine we're really tired after our SU camp. Um, we're not yet because our SU camp is coming up on Friday. Um, so do pray for that. Although, Ricky, have you done your SU camp yet? Ah, so Ricky's got his coming up a week on Friday. I was wondering whether he might be a bit bleary-eyed as well as he was playing the bass. <laughs> Not yet, but that, that is all yet to come. Um, but yeah, this, this morning, maybe I'm just stalling because it's, it's actually a really tough subject that we're looking at today because we're looking at Nehemiah as we're continuing this series and we're looking at chapter 5 and the theme that we're looking at today is on integrity. And... This, in some respects, is a tough word for the church because it seems to be that almost a week goes by or almost every other week, there's some sort of scandal um, which is hitting the news over something which has happened within the church, often related to things which had happened a while ago but are just being brought up now. Um, probably the couple of fairly recent things like this that struck me particularly when I heard about them were when after Ravi Zacharias had died, a lot of people came forward and began to really suggest that there were certainly some large parts of his ministry which were not appropriate for a minister or certainly anybody in his position. And then more recently here in the UK, um, which is even perhaps more pertinent at the moment as we have Magnitude, which is running at Lendrick Muir, is Mike Pilavachi, um, who has just recently resigned from his position. And for so many people, he has been such a fundamental person that has had a large impact on their coming to receive Christ into their lives. And yet... There has been lots of questions over his integrity and some of the ways that he had behaved. And the difficulty with all of these scandals is that they don't just affect the individuals who is being accused. They, they don't just affect the victims who we should really be praying for um, in all of these different matters when they're being raised they also affect how people perceive the church. What their perception is, what their trust is, how they actually take the message it is that we're trying to proclaim that we found within Jesus Christ. In 2002, there was a survey um, which they called the Talking Jesus Report, where they went through lots of different questions to try to get a sense of what is the status and the perceptions of how people view the church at the moment. You're going to need to move the slides on at the back. And you'll see within here that non-Christians who were asked to describe what their view of the church is, well, 9%, they said they viewed the church and people who belong to the church as selfish, 8% as hurtful, 26% as hypocritical, 26% as narrow-minded. 
And these were just kind of like the, the highlighted ones which were pertinent to what we're talking about today. It's difficult. It's actually a really difficult time at the moment in many respects to, to say to people that we are Christians. Um, certainly within society, people have all sorts of preconceptions over how they actually view us. But actually, in many respects, this isn't new. And when we look at the Bible, we also see a pattern which repeats through the Bible about people's relationship, Israel particularly's relationship with God, and how that relationship is perceived by other nations, and what impact that has on being able to proclaim what it means to be in relationship with God. If you look through the Psalms, you actually will tend to find that there's lots of laments about where the people are acknowledging all of the ways that they've fallen short of the promises that they agreed with God. They're lamenting over the fact that they haven't been living the life that God intended for them and how that impacts those around them as well. And we tend to find that it always begins with us. Often it comes down to some kind of fundamental breakdown of relationship with each other. And this morning, as we look at Nehemiah chapter 5, during a period of great excitement, when there's been this big rallying cry to start rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, the very symbol of what it means to be living within God's house, well, we begin to see a breakdown of relationships happening again. It says in verses 1 to 2 that there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish kin. It then went on to say that they were saying, we must get grain so that we may eat and stay alive. Well, in this passage, we're beginning to have an insight into something which we can assume must have been bubbling up for a while. It mentions that there had been a famine. And so there was already a scarcity of resources. And then they then embarked on this building project. And so during this time of famine, they started putting their resources towards this building of the wall, putting their energy into that. And all of these things impacted the... Israel's community in very different ways because some people were blessed to have plenty of resources spare to help them weather through this difficult period for them. Others had less and so they turned to those with plenty for help and those that did have plenty it seems to be that they did help them but they also were charging interest on top of that. And it wasn't easy for the people that were borrowing to be managing with all of these stresses of everyday life, which I'm sure many of us can relate to, to be thinking about how, how are we going to, to gather back together the resources that we owe, including what's accumulating, and then on top of that, to have interest 
applied on top. You know, this calls a lot of tension. And you can see how that continues to play out, even today, this balance between people with plenty and people who do not have plenty. And it is complicated. It's hard without having a much more in-depth explanation of exactly what was going on to actually come to a um, clear sense of what were the different motivations which were driving these different relationships and how they were responding to each other. In some ways, we might look at this and think, well, was there anything necessarily wrong? Because after all, the... Jewish kin were trying to help each other and they were just wanting to ensure that they didn't lose out on any sort of productivity that they might have gained during that period. You know, I think sometimes we need to be honest that even when we're looking at items like this, that there is an element of you can view these from lots of different perspectives. However, what we learn from it, though, is that because of that, more often than not, when trying to deal with issues of disagreement, often the best way to actually deal with them issues is not necessarily to always think, well, how do we directly solve what people are coming towards us with? Instead, it's about looking at the root cause of this issue. What is this underlying tension that's being created, and what is the root cause of this underlying tension. And I think as we begin to look at that more deeply in this passage, we begin to get more of a sense of why this was causing such hurt, such anguish within the community. Because as we look to the root cause of this, it seems to be that there was a sense of people not being valued in the same way as each other. It says in verse 5, it says, We are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been ravished. We are powerless, and our fields and vineyards now belong to others. And it was when hearing this that Nehemiah says that he was angry. You know, that's that's a big word. He didn't just say he was concerned or he thought, oh, here's another issue that I need to deal with. He was he was angry. It had riled him up. Now, when I spoke most recently, um, something which had really been placed on my heart for that message was this sense of God's temple and what Jerusalem meant to his people is that it was so much more than just a building. That the actual word used to describe temple was the same word that would be used to describe our own homes. There was something about this importance of this sense of our identity, of it being a place where we can feel safe. A place where when we all gather together, We are like brothers and sisters. Because if it is a home, then it's a place where we come together and we gather together like a family. And we actually see this significance of what it means to be a family when we gather together. 
because we find that throughout this passage, Nehemiah had intentionally been using the language of kindred, of kin, of brothers and sisters. And when you realize that, it's like the whole passage opens up again to you because it's almost like every other word he's reinforcing that as we're building this house of God, as we're showing what it means to us, we are also demonstrating what it means to belong to the house of the Lord. What it means that we are brothers and sisters within this house. He says in verse 5, they say, Now our flesh is the same as that of our kindred. Our children are the same as their children. And yet, you are all taking interest from your own people. We have brought back our Jewish kindred who had been sold to other nations, but now you are selling your own. Here it's raising this reality that do you not remember when we were slaves and yet God freed us? And yet here you are making slaves of your own brothers and sisters. And when I was thinking about this, it kind of reminded me of, a, to be honest, a fairly trivial um, illustration of when I was younger. But I think it does capture something of what it means to be siblings, what it means to be brothers and sisters, and the importance of that language which is used in the scriptures. Because I always remember that when I was younger, I used to do a paper round. And so that meant that at the end of every week, I'd always get my five pounds or four pounds, whatever much it is, because it was basically child labor at that time, um, to be doing all of this work, delivering papers in the rain. And um, I'm sure lots of people here know exactly what that was like. Um, but I couldn't wait until I would get that money to basically spend it. My sister, on the other hand, she was really good at saving money. And she always had plenty of money spare. So what I used to do is I used to borrow money off my sister in advance because I knew I had my paper around coming. But she was quite shrewd. Um, so shrewd and maybe a bit mean. She's not mean anymore. Don't worry. Um, but I might borrow 10p to go buy lollipops, because wasn't it great when sweets were actually cheap? Um, and, and you'd buy a lollipop, and my sister would be like, yeah, well, you're going to pay me back a pound for that. And I know, people think the interest rate on that is, is crazy. Um, but I was gullible, and I really wanted some sweets. Um, so, so I would do that. So I'm pretty sure that my sister probably had about 80% of all of the paper round money that I ever accrued during that period. Um, but it did, it did remind me of that. And actually, the reason why it reminded me was that just this week, um, we, we were on holiday, and Ethan and Isla, they, they were chatting to each other, and Ethan had remembered that, or it may have been the other way around, it doesn't matter which way around, but, but one of them had had some of their money basically used. And so the other one was straight on it. Like, you, you make sure that you give me that money before we sort out the rest of the pocket money for, for this week. And actually, I remember hearing that, and it brought me back. And my, my immediate reaction was, no, 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 no. You know, you are brother and sister. 
you know, mummy and daddy will sort that out. After all, it was probably us that actually was trying to um, find appropriate change for cash machines, whatever at that time, um, pay machines. But there was this, this sense of actually your brothers and sisters, you, you don't want to hold things like that over each other. And although these can be quite trivial, it did really remind me of what was being dealt with at that time. Because there are going to be opportunities when we can help our kin. And Nehemiah points this out because he said, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants, we are lending them money and grain. He wasn't saying not to help out somebody alongside you, but he said, let us stop taking this interest. Because God's house, when we come together, it's a place where we should all feel safe. And I think Jesus demonstrated this himself when he came into Jerusalem and he drove the moneylenders out of the temple. Because that was all about how they were taking advantage of those who were coming to worship within the house of God. And then here we begin to see how important this is. Because how we respond to each other, how we care for each other, how we care for the people that are supposed to be our very closest kin, brothers and sisters, sends a massive um, message to the world. That's why all of these scandals are such juicy gossip for the newspapers. It's because on one hand, we are preaching a message of love, of compassion, of safety. But then on the other, we show that maybe what we're demonstrating isn't like that. And that definitely shouldn't be the case. Nehemiah sort of like alluded to this in his time when he said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? You know, I think there's a, a really important truth that we see in the gospel which has always struck me from the time that I first heard this. And this is that for many people, we are their first experience of the gospel. For many people, we are actually proclaiming to them the gospel in word and in deed. And if you look at Paul's writings, you'll actually see that he often refers to this. He goes to a lot of lengths when he's writing to the churches to enjoy, to ensure that they do not in any way, um, that they do not in any way, not, I've completely lost the word that I'm looking for, but they do not in any way um, just um, not believe in his integrity. And I'll find the word in a minute. Um, but, you know, Paul's integrity was essential to him. It was essential to how he presented the gospel. And when people were questioning his integrity, he was saying, no, don't do that. Because if you question my integrity, then you can question the good news that I've brought to you. And we actually see this in Thessalonians where he says, our message of the gospel came to you 
not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what the kind of people we prove to be among you for your sake. It came not only in word, but in his full conviction. And it was proved to them by the kind of person that he was. It says in Corinthians, this is our boast, the testimony of our conscience. We have behaved in the world with frankness and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and all the more towards you. I think the thing about integrity is that it's something which is so much related to the, the structural soundness of a object. I think it's when we're thinking about the building of the walls. A wall is only as strong as its weakest point. A small crack can quickly become a seizure. And I'm sure we've all seen that in all of our relationships. Now, I'm sure many of you know that I'm a really keen outdoorsy type person. And, um, and I'm always fascinated by the geology of the mountains. And quite often when you get to the top of the summits, you find that you go onto like a boulder field. And this is a picture from Shehalian, which is a really nice little peak if anyone fancies going out and doing their first Monroe. Um, and you'll see here that you've got all of these big boulders and what's amazing about these big boulders is that these were caused because it was effectively a sheet of rock with little cracks. And over time, the water goes into these rocks, and as it freezes, it expands. And as it expands, it cracks the rock, and then that then allows the wind to start driving through and causing all sorts of erosion. The process to cause that creates these amazing boulders which you can skip across and jump across and it's a whole lot of fun. But it's amazing what the small weaknesses would have been that had created this landscape of all of these boulders. And I think when we think about integrity, I think it's really important to think about this reality of where so often these things just start with the most littlest issue. And as we're in a season ourselves as a church, and we're thinking about what it means to be rebuilding, you know, where is it that God is calling us to? That is really exciting. And we've got all sorts of great ideas that we're trying to, to discern how best to execute them within the church. But actually, all of this will be for nothing if we don't take care of also any small cracks which are beginning to appear. I think that was a reality of COVID for so many people, is that actually the challenge of COVID was often that it was a great amplifier it just amplified things which were already there. And we do need to be careful to watch for these cracks because we are called, we are entrusted with preserving what it is that God has given to us. And in the passage, we learn that it wasn't about the walls. It was about what the walls represented. 
And that represented what it means to be the house of the Lord, what it means to belong to that house, what it means to be the people of God. It's about what it means to be a community together, what the walls represent. Because so often cracks form between people by seeing ourselves as better than others. Or maybe even by seeing ourselves as less than others. But we are called to be the opposite to this. Cat had read in James, Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. I think this lack of valuing each other equally is what we often find is at the root of our crisis of integrity. It's this which erodes so many different people's trust within God. Because when we don't view each other with the value that Jesus viewed us, then we lose sight of how much God loves us, of how much God loves all of us individually. The reality that whatever our privilege, whatever gifts that we've been given, whatever roles we have been given, that at the end of the day, Jesus came and made a sacrifice for all of us. He didn't leave anyone out. He sacrificed himself for everyone because he values each of us. And in this, we get this sense of what it means to be a family because it's in Jesus that we have been adopted as God's children. And as I think about that, it reminds me of this last week, one of the great joys of being able to take time is to go and visit our family all over the place. And like many families today, my family, I've got three siblings, um, we've all gone and we've moved to different places. And it was great because we were, almost all of us, were back together. And one of the most important or most sort of like valuable things that we did that I can remember is we did all of these things together. But at the end of the evening, one night, we all crammed in on a sofa. We were eating our dinner, drinking food, and we were watching a movie together. And there's just something so wholesome about that image to just spend that time together as kin, as brother and sisters. After a long day, all bundled together, eating pizza and watching a movie. And it's because of God and how he sees us that we are able to identify as family as brothers and sisters. And Jesus demonstrated the depth of God's love for us by restoring this relationship with us. And that is amazing. That is, that is something that we should be demonstrating to the world. In everything that we do, we should be trying to demonstrate what it means to be children of God what it means to be brothers and sisters. And we saw this in Nehemiah. 
Because what would have been the use of them building the wall, of completing God's house, if they weren't like brothers and sisters, if there were tensions there? Because all that would have done was demonstrated all of everything that is wrong in the world, which Jesus came to save, that Jesus came to bring together. And so I just want to just finish with Jesus's words in Matthew 5, where he said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? He said, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and to give glory to your Father in heaven. Let us just pray over that. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for adopting us as your children. And we pray, Lord, that as we come together, that we will learn despite our differences, our different personalities, our different roles in life, that we will learn what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray, Lord, that in doing that, that we will be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and how he loved us so much that he gave his life for us. We pray that we will allow Jesus, the light of the world, to shine from our hearts so that people will see not only in word but in deed how the good news of Jesus has impacted our lives and each other. And we pray that in doing that, that we will give all glory and honor to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.